So what is the secret to the show's success? You know, it's Julia. It's all Julia. Of course it is. Welcome back to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and I'm the founder of Cherry Bomb Magazine and the Radio Cherry Bomb Podcast, where I report on some of the most interesting women in the world of food, including trailblazers just like Julia. No one likes an ambitious woman. It isn't ladylike. There are games we have to play to be heard. That's just how it is. After each episode, I'm dishing with creatives from the show, as well as special guests to give us a little perspective and food for thought. Today, in the first half of our show, I'm speaking with two of the folks behind episode five, director Erica Dunton and writer Emily Bensinger. Then it's Grace Young, celebrated cookbook author, Chinatown champion, and friend of Julia's. There are spoilers ahead, so go watch episode five if you haven't yet. Grab a snack, settle in, and we'll be right here waiting for you. Everyone else, let's go. You really seem like a family. Except we all like each other. (laughs) Episode five kicks off with the arrival of Paul's identical twin, Charlie Child. Julia isn't thrilled, as it's a busy week at the TV station, and she is doing a cover story for Life magazine. The timing is terrible, I know, but it's family. After all, he's my big brother. Oh, for God's sake, you're the same age. Meanwhile, Alice and Elaine are hard at work on a new kind of TV show to appeal to WGBH's burgeoning feminist audience. Their boss, Hunter, is less than enthusiastic about the project. It's groundbreaking. But sometimes ground is better left intact. Back at the set of The French Chef, Life magazine writer Noel Winton, played by Michael Esper, follows Julia around while nursing a grudge against Judith, who passed on his novel. Speaking of grudges, Julia and Avis aren't exactly seeing eye to eye. You were here to support me as my friend, and you spent the whole time canoodling. You know, friendship is a two-way street. Put up with me. I put up with you. Now, let's talk with our first guests, director Erica Dunton and writer Emily Bensinger. Emily and Erica, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Would love to know where each of you grew up. Emily, why don't we start with you? I lived in Chicago when I was young, really young, and then we moved to Los Angeles. I think I was in third grade. L.A. is my hometown. Any early food memories? My family was a very, like, we were very mac and cheese. We were we were very craft, very McNugget. Erica, how about you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in London, and then we started coming to Wilmington, North Carolina, when I was around seven. My dad had a business here too, so I was sort of half American in my mind because we'd come here three times a year. But yeah, went to school and everything and grew up in England, grew up in London. Two very, very different places. Oh yeah, hell yeah. Oh yeah, refills. Refills in the 80s were like, if you were an English kid, you were like, what? You can just get as much Coca-Cola as you want? It was crazy. That was a big deal back then. And onion rings. We didn't have onion rings in England back then. Erica, you grew up in a film family. Your dad Mm -hmm. was a cinematographer. What was that like growing up around that industry? Amazing. So I grew up on a lot of sets, a lot of Stanley Kubrick sets or David Lynch sets or Terry Gilliam sets. And there was something about being a kid on those sets and just seeing the scale. I think that was mind blowing because you didn't really know what your dad did. And he made it. He did a lot of lens and camera rental, too. So it wasn't just cinematographer. He was an engineer and had a workshop. And I think it just more than anything, it just gave you the storytelling gene. 
you know, that it was just, if grown-ups can get paid to do, to like David Lynch and Dune to make a cave like that, you're like, wow, that's a great job. I want that one. But I actually didn't think about that because my mother kept talking to me about being a lawyer. So she wanted a lawyer, a doctor, and a vet, and she got a director and two cameramen is what she's ended up with, and she's still cross. Emily, how about you? I grew up in Hollywood. My dad is a television writer, so I wasn't actually very visionary in my career (laughs) choice, but I knew I wanted to be a writer very early. And when I said I wanted to go to film school, my mother also was very unhappy about it. She didn't think I was serious. So I've been trying to prove her wrong. That's my whole mission in life is to prove I know, my mother mine wrong. Too. Well, the really funny thing is, if you know the truth, is that my mom has never watched anything I've ever done. Like I've done ever, so many things that she could have watched. I mean, there's some darker stuff and she'll be like, it's not cheerful. There's no cheerful bits. But I really thought that she would watch Julia because she is a caterer. She catered all my indie films. I did 20 years of indie films. So she was supportive. So she's an amazing woman, but she just hates the film industry because it took my dad away when we were growing up. But anyway, so I thought she'd watch Julia because Sarah Lancashire is like a goddess in England. She's like, oh, Meryl Streep. And it's about food because it's catering. And so she still hasn't. But what's so funny is that all her friends watch it and she pretends that she's watched it, but she still hasn't watched it. And she doesn't do podcasts, so she will never hear this. I am in a safe space. Let's talk about the show creatively and thematically. What did you discuss regarding season two and making it feel fresh but familiar? The big conversation we had at the start of season two was how to do exactly that and what sort of the theme of the season would be, which is change. The country at this time was going through such massive upheaval. Everything was moving forward and changing very rapidly. And and we were really interested in how Paul and Julia were going to handle that, as well as, as Alice and all of these other characters. Julia in the show and in in real life, she, her rise to fame was meteoric. It was so quick. And so I think a lot of season one was about how she was going to become the French chef. But once the French chef started, it was, it just took off. And so we were talking a lot about how would she deal with the fame? What would that mean for Paul? How would their marriage survive this scrutiny? So it was a lot of that. I think the big theme was resisting change and giving in to change and and the tension there. So we had a lot of fun with that. And I think each episode you can see where we were really thinking about that. Erica, how did you approach it? To further Emily's point is I think you could feel it in my season one episode. My episode was just that she was just having the idea and she was bordering on, she saw herself on all the televisions and she was just becoming famous, which was crazy to her and getting, she went back to Smith College and she was recognized. And, and then this is definitely an evolution of that, of how a person deals with it. To me, I thought even in season one, I thought it was so interesting that basically I just loved the fact that people would say, no one wants to watch somebody else cook on television. Like that's not an idea for a show. And then that's all we do now. Like that's the Kardashian, like that we just watch other people. It's like she was the birth of reality TV without even realizing it. You know, I just think that was so, and that's where good ideas come from is that when they're not copying, it's just, it's a, it's an individual's life experience, just, and all the different things that go into making that brain out of this brain pops an idea and then it gets made. And then that's, I think was the evolution of that. And then gaining all the things that celebrity power and gives you, and then also losing all the things that being a celebrity gives you. I think that was really interesting, and especially in personal relationships. And Julia navigated all of this with no, there there was no model. She is the model for cooking shows and for exactly what Erica's talking about. So a lot of this season is how is she going to 
use her fame and power, and we really don't see her make any decisions until the end about that. And I think also now when you think about it, Emily, is that those kind of successful people, whether they're celebrity and reality shows or, what, or again, now it's influencers and YouTubers, and the moment they sort of become successful, they end up with a team of people around them. And there's publicists and there's agents and there's managers, and they guide them to like, where do you want to focus and where do you want to put your energy and what do you want to achieve? And she didn't have any of that, but then she did have her own team, which is she had Hunter and Avis and Paul. And it's so funny that she actually made, I mean, Avis was doing all the essentially marketing sometimes and all the mm. props. And because I don't think any man is an island or any woman is an island or any person is an island. And that was so and, important. Yeah. And in, in creating this season, we wanted each character to be moving forward and going on their own journey, but also surrounding, you know, if it's a solar system, Julia's the sun, but all of these characters had to have their own lives. It is all around the solar system, but other people get to shine brightly. And Alice was one, but then it burnt out. Like it was that with the four women by women in our episode was heartbreaking. Let's talk specifically about episode five. There is a yes. lot going on here. Emily, yes. want to tell us your thoughts on this episode, how it came to be? We knew that we wanted to do an interview with Life magazine because we wanted to show the scope of Julia and how big the show was. And we knew that we wanted to meet Charlie Child. And combining those two events just felt like, of course, you have to do that because it's going to be tense because the two brothers had a complicated relationship and Julia wanted to present herself a certain way to the world, of course. And it just was too juicy to not have Charlie show up right when they were going to do the interview. And then Alice's story, it's tragic in this episode. So the idea that progress can't come all at once and that it's two steps forward, three steps back, it's complicated. And I think all of the fun of the twins and uh, coupled with sort of the melancholy, the bittersweet of Alice and Elaine and their show. And Avis, and yeah, that was, that was a tough, tough scene to shoot. Woo. Oh, yeah. I, and we do try to keep all of the relationships very real and constantly evolving the same way as they do. And so the Avis and Julia confrontation, the two best friends that there ever were having a fight, it just it also felt juicy. It was a great episode. They were so good. So you mentioned Paul's twin brother showing up. Erica, so curious. How do you handle something like that as a director when you have the same person playing twins? You take a really deep breath. <laughs> you go out for a glass of wine with the writer and go, what the hell? No, you, you find a really good double is what you do. And we found a fantastic actor called Ian Lyons who saved our bacon. And you think about what the story needs. And basically, there's so many different ways to shoot twins and you can do all this kind of stop. Like you can, you can get really flash with it. And, and there is the technology to do all sorts of things. But for me, it was sort of about honoring the actor's process because our show is so actor-driven. And it's beautiful. The sets are beautiful. The wardrobe is beautiful. Like all the cinematography is beautiful. But it's really always still about the performances. It was how can I keep it as simple as possible, as real as possible, like enough to, that the audience is going to buy into that there's twins and suspend their disbelief, but also not get distracted by off and certainly not show off about it. So we just did it a lot of split screen. I do a rehearsal for the twin of it all, a twinning rehearsal. And David Hyde Pierce was a god, is a god, and he was phenomenal. I would literally put a line of gaffer tape along the floor 
so that everyone knew it. And if there wasn't a mystery, it wasn't some kind of technical, magical thing that we were doing. Everyone would watch it and we'd shoot this side first and we'd have David be whichever brother he wanted to be first. And then we'd switch it and switch clothes. And then Ian would come in. And we'd, so you do some back of head, but he was such a good actor, Ian himself, and in his own right. I knew whoever was going to be sitting at that table with that quality of actors had to hold his own. You have to act with Sarah. I mean, hello, it be David Hyde Pierce. So you have to sit opposite BBs. And he was fantastic. We just, we got really lucky. So some of the over the shoulders were the double, but then all those that I lined. And then David was just phenomenal. And I think what was really interesting about it was watching an actor like David was, I think, just the nuance. Like he knows everything. He does all his research. He's just, he just comes, they all do, come so prepared. And he was so in love with the idea of poor child and Charlie Child and this relationship. And he'd done, he knew more than any of us put together on set about it. But it was watching, because often with like the parent trap of it all, you're used to kind of comedy and twins and like sort of more mainstream. And this was just a very nuanced performance between the two men. Just the way that even his mouth moved slightly differently. Like it was just so subtle, but so beautiful to watch. And then when you put them together in the post, it just looks amazing. Even the way they play piano is different and that kind of, and obviously the way they move. And he knew, he just brought everything to it. And I don't know how he did, and he did it with such grace because if anyone could have been cross for a second or just been tired, it could have been him. And he just wasn't. He just was, he was up for it every minute. It was amazing. And also I have to say, Erica said it wasn't technical and magical and show-offy, but it was extraordinary to watch because we made it so hard for you. We had them playing piano <laughs> next to each other. Couldn't have made it more difficult. And it was incredible to see how you did that. But it's a bit of a, it's a puzzle. It was always, it was a fun puzzle. Anything like that always becomes like a puzzle that it's fun to solve. Emily, as you're writing, do you know, like, oh my gosh, what are the directors and the actors going to think? Much more now than, than I did when I was starting. Now I do actually think like, oh, do we need to have this person in this scene? Do we need to have extras? I do think about it in terms of production. But with this episode, I considered Erica not at all. Just went completely for... How? Because you hadn't met me. (laughs) And I didn't, I did not know how the twins would work. This was the first time I'd ever written twins. And it was amazing to see and to see David just really become a different person. Let's talk about the aspects of episode five that are based on real life occurrences. I know Julia was on the cover of Time magazine in 1966. What inspired the Life magazine storyline? There actually was no, we didn't have any example of a real life magazine interview from this period. So we got to have some creative license. Obviously, she's done a million interviews with a million people, but we wanted to not base this on an actual specific interview so that we could make it more about what we wanted it to be about. Charlie Child and their relationship, we tried to stay as true as we possibly could to what their dynamic was. My Life in France was really helpful for that. David Hyde Pierce did so much research on Charlie. We really wanted to explore the truth of their relationship. The other thing that's really interesting that I don't know if people know this, but WGBH was also making fairly radical programming. Radical for the time, I mean. But Alice's story and By Women for Women was not a show that actually happened. And Alice is not. She's a amalgamation of other characters. That's something that could have happened. And we wanted to be very true to that as well. Just the four women by women, and they're all talking about access to contraception. And you're like, what? It's just a really interesting, still a conversation about women and women's bodies. 
And to me, that's one of the most startling and arresting things about Julia. You're watching this period piece, yet the themes are so the themes are so current, sadly. It's very depressing when you think about it on the one hand. But in the writer's room, it's so you learn so much when you're I thought by women for women. There's no this we're we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're looking at this from a 20. We were writing in 2022 and we weren't. This is a conversation that has been going on in this country for such a long time. And it was interesting to try and look at it from the perspective of women in that era without looking at it from our contemporary lens. And and I think we do that a lot on the show. We take real events and things from Julia's life, but we try to keep it vague enough that it's you, you don't spend your time watching the series thinking that isn't exactly how that happened you really sink into sort of the themes and the mood and the ideas as opposed to the specifics. But it's also, I think, a testament to your writing, Emily, that it's the same thing as like it's not being clever or flash. There is nothing wrong about simplicity and clarity for an audience. If you're not trying to figure out if it's real or not or trying to place it in a specific history timeline, then you're you're just genuinely you've got room to enjoy it and, and just watch these characters emote, which is what they're doing in every frame, and feel for them. Because we're all cross time and space, we're all just still humans. We did a lot of work, Emily and I work on this, like I do it with lots of writers, but we sit and you do, a, you do a logic pass and you do a transition pass and you just make it really, really clear. And I think that not trying to show off, just let all the costumes and the wardrobe and the actor, that they all do that for you. But the writing and the directing is, is almost as deceptively as simple as it can be, I think. What is a logic pass? It's something Erica made up that is so (laughs) annoying and so smart. Well, I'm very dyslexic. And the only person who values it as much as I is Jason Sudeikis, who's just logic king. He and I, like, he's like, oh, yeah, it's really important. And everyone else is like, that's not, oh, they'll figure that out and they'll understand. But I'm like annoyingly logical just because and I do it in prep and then it goes away in in the shoot. I just want to understand everything. I want to understand where her bag was before all how it got there, or just so there's no surprises on set. So we make sure that I can explain to actors, I have the answer to any question that they might ask me in any given moment, where they've come from, where they're going. or And also I think about the logic that she would have a cup of coffee and so then you can offer a cup of coffee or because she would have got, you know, just all that stuff of how they're, they're chronological, I think, is just so that I have it really clear in my head and then it saves so much time on the day because you're not asking for props to suddenly get a coffee that you hadn't prepped or just have options. It's always just options. It's an extraordinary thing. It's so smart. I'm making fun of you, but it saves so much time in the long run because you do. We actually sat down and figured out the story of Julia making Paul and Charlie coffee and how you would choreograph that. And it everything is more complicated than you realize when you're writing it, when you get to set, you're like, oh, even if this person is left-handed and right-handed, should they be sitting where they're sitting? And Erica makes you go over that for hours ahead of time. <laughs> Erica, I feel like you're you're onto something. People should put entire chunks of their lives through the logic path. <laughs> well, it's just that then when the actors come, you've done a lot of their hard work for them. You basically can, you can block it and you can explain stuff and you've done it. You've done a lot of their work for them. Talk to me about how you approach shooting something like episode five? Where do you start? We usually start with something called a tone meeting where we go through each scene and the emotions behind the scene and what we want to get out of the scene and where each character is coming from. And the really interesting thing about this episode, and we try to have each episode of Julia have something very special and specific about it. And this was the twinning. I just watched Erica work her magic 
because it was so much more complicated and incredible than what you'd think. I don't know why. I just pictured two people acting together and you'd shoot around them. And that's <laughs> what happened. It's also, it's just that you have a great team. You have Chris and Daniel. And a lot of it, when you're an episodic director and you're a director for hire and you're coming in, is you're elevating everything you've been given and you are delivering what they need in the edit room. There's some ego involved because you have to be a leader and you have to you have to inspire everyone on set to follow you as a director. But to me, Emily's more important on set than I am because she's been in the writer's room. She has more access to Daniel and Chris than I do. She's had access to all these conversations. It's lovely because I've, I've done a lot of independent films that I've written and produced. When you write and produce and direct your own, you don't have a writer next to you. you. You have these different hats that you can put on, but no one cares about the words as much as you do. And with Emily or with a writer on set, you get that kind of great access to that relationship. But now I think it's all, is you just have a great team. And, and David Hyde Pierce in this was so up for it. Sarah was fantastic because everyone has to do it twice. Everyone has to bring their A game. No, we just got very lucky. This, I mean, the show is, is truly a joy to work on. Talk to me about Julia Child a bit. Erica, did you grow up in a household that knew who Julia was? Yes, my mom had the book. But the only thing she made, I think, was beef bourguignon. That was where beef bourguignon was a big deal in England. Did folks in the UK know who Julia was? Yes, yes. And Emily, how about you? You had two working parents. Did Julia factor in very much? No, no, there was not a lot of... We did not. We were not like a cookbook family. My husband and I trying to figure out how to make an omelet. We were watching Julia Child YouTube videos, and I thought she was so charming, and I still can't make an omelet. And he can make a really good omelet. But that was when I really, that was, was like 24. Okay, before we get to the last question, I want to ask about wrap gifts, because I understand, Erica, you are the queen of the wrap gift. A lot of directors you and writers will do, you can do a food truck, so that comes and do waffles or ice cream, or but it's sort of like your gift to the crew. But I will... I spend ages personalizing and thinking about what I want to do. So for Julia, we did, it was in season one, I didn't make Emily do it, but we hand stamped 250 wooden spoons with Julia. And then it was a whisk. And then we had like, a, the, she had a very specific tea towel. I made green pens like this, but they had the Julia, and they had a Julia Child quote, which I think was, a, it was a green pen that Judith uses for editing. And I think it was. Judith Jones was legendary for making her edits in a green pen. Exactly. And it was, I think it was something to, I can't remember the quote, but it was something to do with people. It was every, basically, we're all just people, is what something, it was, it was that, that intention, which is what I loved Julia Jarp for, was that she just saw everyone. And that was the other thing, is working in Boston, you'd get in an Uber or you'd go to a restaurant and you'd have a conversation, oh, I'm here for the Julia. Everyone in Boston had a story about Julia Child. And it involved her making them sandwiches or my dad's sandwiches when she came around for the house. She just treated everyone equally and at her level and male or female. Or, and I think that was, that's one of the biggest takeaways from Julia was that she's just so inspiring in that way. And was there a rap gift that involved Time Magazine, 1966? Oh, right. <laughs> yes. The other thing that's so amazing about Erica's rap gifts is you're working very long hours and you go to set. You do your job, you sleep, you go to set. It's an intense process. And no one's thinking about gifts. And then Erica shows up the last day with these incredible gifts. She gave me the actual 1966 Time magazine physical copy with Julia on the cover. I have It's framed now in my office. And I still don't know how you did that. It's eBay, baby. <laughs> okay, last question. Julia's coming over for dinner. What do you make, Emily? The only thing I am any good at is the kokomong. 
I don't think I've mastered it. I like cooking it because you drink wine the whole time. But I don't know if I would serve her that. The only thing I, I would want to go out to dim sum with Julia is what I was thinking because she loved <laughs> Chinese food. I wouldn't want to cook for her. I'd be too nervous. Erica, what would you make for Julia? Julia reminds me, I had to do, it's like a big name drop, but it's a fun name drop, is I had to go for dinner with Dolly Parton. Had to. Because it was, because I did a show for Dolly Parton, it was her anthology show called Hot Strings. She took us for steak. You know what I mean? It was like, it was just, and of course Dolly Parton's going to take you for steak. Like it was, and it's that thing of why Dolly reminds me of Julia is that whole idea of just, you just need to be who you need to be. And in no matter what time or space you're born in, you're, they, they just both feel like fully fledged women who just lived their own truth, but not, didn't diminish anyone else's experiences, not at the expense of anyone's experience. They just, they just born that way and that's who they are. To that end and hearing all the stories of Julia making sandwiches and she was, it was very sort of basic food that she liked. She didn't want you to be flash or fancy, I don't think, even though, she, again, her recipes were insanely fancy. So I just think a roast dinner, an English roast dinner with like a good, some roast lamb, roast potatoes, broccoli, cauliflower, or roast chicken with stuffing, or beef and, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. All very English. Just a, the staple food is what I think. Meat and potato. They're both meat and potatoes, ladies, in my mind. Thank you, Erica and Emily. Now, let's check in with Grace Young. Grace has won six IACP awards for her cookbooks, a James Beard Humanitarian of the Year Award, and a Julia Child Foundation Award for her work on behalf of Chinatowns across the country during the pandemic. Grace was friends with Julia and considered her a mentor. Let's learn more. The only brand I'm selling on The French Chef is Honesty. Grace Young, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Grace, you were chosen to receive the Julia Child Award in 2022. It's an award presented by the Julia Child Foundation for individuals who have made significant contributions to the culinary world. They chose you for your activism on behalf of Chinatowns across America. So in January of 2020, New York City's Chinatown, like Chinatowns all across the United States, was shunned due to misinformation and xenophobia. I think that I, like many people, took Chinatowns for granted, assuming that they would always be there. But when I saw Chinatown become a ghost town, many of the businesses lost 80 to 90 percent of their business as early as January of 2020. And we lost legacy businesses that had been part of the community for 40, 50 years. I realized that someone needed to speak up. If you ask anyone that knows me, I've never been an activist in my entire life. Nobody was more surprised than me to realize that my unique background as a Chinese cookbook author and a culinary historian made me the perfect advocate for Chinatowns. How did you even know where to begin? There was no strategy or plan, which is, I think, why Grub Street called me the accidental voice of Chinatown. I was really operating from my gut instincts. And the first thing that I did was to reach out to media that I know to try and raise awareness of what was happening to Chinatowns across the United States. But the first thing that I did really was to do social media posts and to try and just raise awareness to people of what was going on. One of the turning points was 
by chance, I ended up doing a video series called Coronavirus Chinatown Stories, which I co-produced with Poster House Museum and this amazing videographer named Dan Ahn. And we ended up in Chinatown in New York City, Sunday, March 15th, interviewing restaurant owners and shop owners and just getting their story about what they had experienced in the last two and a half months. And unbeknownst to us, by the end of the day, Mayor de Blasio put New York City in lockdown. So that's a very important document of what actually happened to New York City's Chinatown. But the other things that I did, they're so wild and crazy. I raised money for legacy restaurants and to provide personal security alarms for the elderly in Chinatown and workers. I created three different social media campaigns with the Beard Foundation to protect AAPI businesses, Asian American Pacific Islander. Oh, my God, there were so many things I did. And little things, you know, I was shopping for friends that were sheltering in place in Chinatown. Yeah, I just did everything I could think of in my power to raise awareness of what was going on and to try and get the public to support their local Chinatowns. And you continue to do it. It has become your life's work. Yeah, because sadly, Chinatowns all across the United States are still suffering. The foot traffic and tourism hasn't returned. And from Honolulu to New York City, every Chinatown is reporting that the businesses are struggling especially my hometown, which is San Francisco's Chinatown, is really suffering. I understand that it's really quiet at night. The dinner business isn't there. In San Francisco and in Boston's Chinatown, they are adjacent to the financial districts. And so because people haven't returned to work at lunchtime, they don't have the business they used to. So it's really more important than ever that everyone show up. Some incredible things have happened to you since you won the Julia Child Award. Did I hear you've been to the White House? Yes, I was invited to the White House for the Lunar New Year celebration this past year. And it was very cool because it was the first time the White House has ever had a Lunar New Year celebration. So that was extremely cool. And we got to see President Biden and First Lady. It was just one of the most memorable experiences of my life. I'm not sure how I got invited to this, but it's just been absolutely amazing the kinds of things that I've done this year. I've had two meetings, private meetings, with Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, speaking about the importance of supporting America's Chinatowns. In the spring, I was invited to speak at the Capitol to Democratic senators about my work which was extremely intimidating, but I did it. A few months ago, I was one of the honorees for the Forbes 50 over 50 list, and USA Today named me as one of the women of the year this year. I mean, that's just totally crazy. I got to meet Vice President Kamala Harris. We're here to talk about you and Julia Child, so let's talk about Julia a little bit. How did it feel receiving an award named for someone you consider a mentor? There's no greater honor than to receive an award in honor of Julia. It's especially meaningful for me because without Julia, I would not have had a food career. When I discovered her on TV, she gave me my curiosity and passion for food and set me on a path to discover different cuisines 
And to receive an award which is in homage of Julia, she started it all for me. So what could be better, honestly? Let's talk about your first encounter with Julia, which was through a television set. As a child, the French Chef cooking show was my favorite show. And all my other friends, I think, were watching the Beverly Hillbillies, or I'm I'm not sure what, but I just loved Julia. She was so real and authentic, and I was just mesmerized by seeing her on TV. And recently, my cousin Sylvia's son, Thomas, sent me an episode of Julia making brioche. Because Thomas knows that the first recipe I ever made from Julia was her brioche. And when I got to see this segment, she starts the show by talking about, we're making brioche today. And she says, we're calling this Goldilocks and the brioche. And she has three different brioche on set. And she goes, there's the papa brioche and the mama brioche and the baby brioche. And so it actually made me realize maybe that was the first show that I ever saw. And how appealing to, I would have been like 11 years old, for someone to speak about cooking as a sort of a fairy tale. But I remember I convinced my mother that she should let me make brioche. We had to go to the supermarket to buy yeast, which I had never worked with. I had never cooked, right? My mom was actually very, very sophisticated. She had been raised in Shanghai and been exposed to French pastries. And I remember after I followed Julia's instructions and we put the brioche into the oven, as we sat there waiting, the aroma that filled the kitchen was just intoxicating and heavenly, like nothing we had ever smelled before. And when I opened the oven, I will always remember the look on my mom's face. She was totally amazed, and the brioche were golden and puffed, just like they're supposed to be. And then when she actually bit into the brioche and it was so buttery and tender, I could see that she was just so happy. All I wanted to do was cook another Julia recipe and another. So that's what got me hooked into the life of cooking. Did you start cooking at home more often? So my mother and father allowed me to make all kinds of different recipes from Julia. I made cream puffs. I made the roast lamb with garlic. Everything worked. All the recipes were just perfect. You eventually meet Julia Child. Yes. When I was about 15 years old, I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle, and I saw that she was coming to the White House department store for a book signing. I had no idea what a book signing was, but I convinced my father that he should take off from work and bring me to this book signing. It was for the Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 2 had just been released, and that's what was being sold. But I brought my battered copy, paperback, of the French Chef cookbook and waited in line. I was the only child. I think we were the only Asians in the room. All the other people on the line were very elegantly dressed women. But eventually, we made it all the way up to see Julia, and Paul was with her, and they couldn't have been nicer. They both signed my book. And last year, when I received the Julia Child Award, I gave that book and several photos of Julia and me and a postcard that Julia had written to me 
to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. That was very unbelievable to know that my book is now at the museum. You had a second memorable encounter with Julia. Tell us about that one. So in 2000, after my first cookbook, The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen, was published, I was invited by the American Institute of Wine and Food to give the keynote speech for a banquet in San Francisco. And Julia Child was the most celebrated guest for that evening. And so they seated her next to my mother and me. And my father was at the table. I just couldn't believe the experience of being with her that evening. It was such an important moment for me professionally because I was able to thank Julia publicly in my speech for giving me my career in food and also for inspiring me to write The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen. And it was just so wonderful to speak with her the entire evening. And as we enjoyed our dinner, which was a Chinese banquet, there was a steady stream of people that just kept on coming up to Julia. And she would always give them a 100% of her attention. And at the end of the evening, she said that we should stay in touch. And then she reached into her handbag, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get Julia Child's business card. But instead, she pulled out her checkbook, and she gave me a deposit slip And on the upper left-hand corner, it said Julia Child with her address and phone numbers, but she hand-wrote her phone numbers again on the check and gave it to me. And that is also at the museum. I also donated that. But it was just an amazing, amazing night to be able to be with her. And then after that, a month later, Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen was nominated for an IECP award, and she sent me a postcard congratulating me and saying that she saw that I was nominated for the Julia Child First Cookbook Award and the Best International Cookbook Award, and she wrote that she hoped that I would win. And then a month or two after that, IECP had their conference, she attended, and she was at the gala when Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen won. So my husband took this wonderful photo of Julia and me after I'd received the award. Let's go back to the start of your cookbook career. You said Julia influenced it. But how did you get your start in cookbooks? I got my start because I got a wonderful job when I was in my 20s working for a book packager called Rebus. And their main client was Time Life Books. And I was the test kitchen director and the director of food photography. In the course of my career at Rebus, I probably worked on over 40 cookbooks, mainly for Time Life Books. So you said to yourself, I can do this. Well, it was really wonderful training because Time Life Books had such a stellar reputation and everything had to be super accurate. And so all the recipes that we tested were tested over and over again. And so it really honed my own skills for recipe writing. And then in my 30s, I realized that I had really focused so much energy in exploring every cuisine that wasn't Chinese, and that I had taken my own Cantonese culinary heritage for granted. And so I started flying home to San Francisco to cook with my mother and father because I wanted to record all those comfort foods that I love so much from my childhood. How were your parents when you were trying to get them to measure everything? 
oh, they were terrible at first because they don't measure. They didn't use measuring spoons or measuring cups. But I, I got a wonderful system down before my mother would take a scoop of cornstarch to add to the chicken or beef if she was marinating it for a stir fry. I would let her take the scoop with a little spoon, and then I would just quickly measure it and then let her add it. Or if she was cooking a braise and she was adding rice wine or soy sauce to it, I would just measure a quarter of a cup and I would say, add however much you want to add, and then I would measure what she hadn't added, and then I would know. So I had these little tricks for just being able to, like, capture the actual measurements. But I had stopwatches to make sure that I could time everything. And it was really hard to cook with my mom because she would actually be cooking four dishes simultaneously. When she first came to America, she did not know how to cook. So she was a self-trained cook, but she had such a refined palate that there was no way she was going to eat American food. And she felt that she had to cook the dishes as she had had them in China. And so she just figured it out. Some recipes she learned from friends, from family, from the Chinese newspaper. But by the time I was recording her recipes, she was an unbelievable home cook. Grace, a lot of people in the industry look up to you today in the same way that you looked up to Julia. I'm curious how you managed that responsibility. One thing that I always say to young people is that I'm an example that all of us can make a difference. The most ordinary person in the world can make an impact. And during the pandemic, my dear friend Linda Pagan shared with me a quote from Desmond Tutu. Do your little bit of good. It's all those little bits of good added up that overwhelm the world. And I think that has really been my model throughout this period. There's nothing that's too small. And every little bit does count. And it's so important to do good in the world, right? It gives us so much purpose, and it's that connection that we have to each other that is so important to nourish. That's beautiful, Grace, and wonderful advice to leave us with. Last question. Julia is coming over for dinner. What do you make for her? Definitely Chinese food. Julia and Paul lived in China for several years, and there's a wonderful New Yorker article where Julia is quoted as saying that she would be perfectly happy with only Chinese food. One of the most special recipes that my parents taught me when I was writing The Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen is a recipe called tender chicken on rice, and in Cantonese it's called wat gai fan, and it's so simple but crazy good and you start with a small pot of rice. I don't use a rice cooker. I use an old-fashioned little saucepan. In China, you would use a sand pot. A sand pot is, in fact, a clay pot. And in China, traditional cooks always make their rice, in the old days, in a clay pot sand pot, because it's said to actually make the rice more fragrant and more delicious. But you start cooking the rice, and as the rice is cooking, you put together this stir-fry of chicken with shiitake mushrooms and ham. So it's chicken slices that have been marinated with a little ginger, soy sauce, cornstarch, and then you stir-fry it with the mushrooms and the ham. And when the stir-fry is three-quarters done 
and the rice is almost cooked through, you put the stir-fry on top of the rice and put the lid back on. And that gentle heat for the last five minutes finishes cooking the chicken so that the chicken is never overcooked. It remains juicy and succulent. And the juices from the chicken and the mushrooms and the ham seep into the rice. So it's this sort of one-pot wonder. And I think that Julia would love the simplicity and the fact that it is just so delicious. What would you two talk about? I would definitely share with her what Chinatowns have been going through. And I know that she would be totally on board using her name and reputation to speak about the importance of preserving and protecting America's Chinatowns. Thank you to Erica Dunton, Emily Bensinger, and Grace Young for joining us on Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox. Our executive producers are Catherine Baker and Yasmin Nesbat. Our associate producer is Jenna Sadu, And our editorial assistant is London Crenshaw. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review for Dishing on Julia on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe. When you leave your review, let me know what you've loved the most about this season so far. We're more than halfway through, but there's still a lot to resolve this season. In the meantime, leaving you with a bit of wisdom from our favorite supportive spouse, Paul Child. Julia is the tip of the iceberg, exposed, shining, making her mark on the world. And I am down below, holding her up, anchoring her, supporting her. And in that way, we are partners, connected. I like it. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.